Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to Mixed Methods. This week, we decided to do something special and release the last two episodes that we recorded at the Kai Conference. I hope that you enjoy them and learn as much as I did. So here's this week's first episode. Ethnography is one of the most like exciting and humbling things that you ever get to do. And it's so exciting because you get to see everything. But at the same time, I just am always humbled by the fact that here's this person who's allowing me to come into their home or into their workplace or a doctor into their office or whatever the case might be. Uh, and I get to just be a fly on the wall and see what's happening, ask them questions, sometimes really personal questions. And uh, I, that's just not lost on me. In any field, there are some topics that are more widely agreed upon and some that are more widely debated. For UX research, ethnography falls in the latter. It's defined as, quote, the scientific description of the customs of individual peoples and cultures. Historically, the term has been widely used in anthropology to describe studies that can last for years and explore other cultures in an immersive way almost unheard of today. This type of ethnography, even in the academic world, is undergoing a transition as it becomes more and more difficult for men and women to dedicate themselves for such long periods of time to this type of study. This year, Kai hosted a workshop on ethnography. For UX researchers, this type of observation-based study can be invaluable when trying to understand the way different groups think, feel, and behave. Sarah Garcia, who hosted this year's workshop, sat down to tell us a bit more about it. She spent over 10 years at UE Group doing UX research for some of the world's largest companies. This is Ariel Sionflon, and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, Ethnography a 21st century interpretation. So my name is Sarah Garcia and I work for UE Group, which is a research design and development agency in San Jose, California. I've been there for 12 years. Wow. Very long time. Yeah. Must be liking it. Yeah. I mean, I credit that to the fact that we're a consultancy. So, you know, every month, every two months, we're rotating through to a different project. Um, That's both exhilarating and exhausting Yeah. at the same time, because you're sort of always looking for what's next. You're looking for um, getting up to speed on what's next. You know, I mean, I've had to learn everything from brain surgery to... um, you know, gesture-based gaming. It's just changing all the time, but um, but I love it. Yeah. So maybe you could speak a little bit to, and wait, did you say your title? My official title is Sleuth. Uh, <laughs> and I actually think that fits me really well. And I think um, I've always been the kind of person that's just sort of been, uh, I just wonder a lot. I wonder about why people do the things they do and you know, why is that place there? And uh, how did that get there? Why did they make that decision? And so it annoys my family, my kids for sure. But um, it's definitely done uh, me wonders in this particular field. I mean, it's so neat when you kind of organically find something that fits so well. Yeah. Uh, So we're here at CHI 2017, uh, and you're teaching a course around ethnography. So what was, you know, kind of your first introduction to ethnography? Most of my initial exposure to really UX was in the lab and doing um, usability testing, that type of thing. So the very first couple times that I got to go out into people's homes and and all of that, I just really developed this um, amazing 
kind of appetite for that of being able to actually see how people live and actually understand how they're using something when they're not in the confines of our lab and we're asking them questions and we're asking them to recreate things. So one of the things I say in um, my course is that ethnography is one of the most like exciting and humbling things that you ever get to do. And it's so exciting because you get to see everything. But at the same time, I just am always humbled by the fact that here's this person who's allowing me to come into their home or into their workplace or a doctor into their office or whatever the case might be. Uh, And I get to just be a fly on the wall and see what's happening, ask them questions, sometimes really personal questions. And uh, that's just not lost on me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because so many uh, methods in UX research are really intimate in a way, right? Like you're having this really deep conversation with someone that maybe you met five minutes ago. And I think, you know, in terms of all of the methods, ethnography might be the most that way because you know, you're actually in someone's home, you're in someone's like most private spaces or like most personal spaces having those conversations. Yeah. And I mean, you can't help it. You know, there's things that you, if you're a good observer, there's things that you observe that you can't help but see, right? The, the pictures on the wall, the, um, you know, you see that there's stuff there for kids, but you know that they don't have their kids there with them. What happened to those kids? Where are they? Are they with the dad what's you know what's the story behind that I mean you just begin to kind of see a lot of things that you wouldn't see normally and while that doesn't always matter to the research that you're doing it does matter to the person that you're interviewing and um, you know like you said you can get real deep real quick Um, sometimes you have to be careful not to go too deep and you know either getting off topic or bringing up something that you didn't necessarily intend to but the fact that you can get there quickly in someone's home is uh, really a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you obviously have a wealth of experience doing this, having done it for 12 years and also for such, you know, like you were saying, such a diverse uh, set of problems and also clients. I mean, you can't beat the client list that UE Group has. I would love to hear your perspective just in terms of kind of like starting this conversation around ethnography, because one of the things uh, I think that also sets apart like the conversation around ethnography is it's a little bit controversial, right? Like everyone agrees uh, when you're doing a usability test, it's a usability test, right? But I feel like people have different names for the same things. Like sometimes people use ethnography when, you know, someone else would definitely disagree that you know that's the right term so I would love to kind of have you um, speak a little bit to how you define ethnography in that space yeah I mean that's a great point because you know because we're a consulting firm we even have to be really careful sometimes somebody wants to call it a contextual inquiry sometimes people want to call it observational research and then just because they're calling it something different doesn't mean that they're describing something different Uh, so for me when I'm talking about ethnography I'm really talking about observing what people are doing and then talking to them about that. Um, Like to me, you can do just straight observation, but I feel like if you don't get the chance to ask people the follow-up questions, then you potentially are going to be making judgments that aren't true. So uh, the observation's great because they don't know necessarily what you're looking for and what you're observing, but that follow-up interview or the follow-up conversation is really key to make sure that you're interpreting what you saw correctly. Because uh, you just can't make blanket judgments without confirming that with a person who was actually doing it. Uh, so to me, ethnography means that you you go, you observe, you listen, 
and you learn. I mean, that's that's really the the main objectives. Mm-hmm. So you know, you're obviously going into someone's home, and you have this amazing opportunity to observe them in that space. In terms of you coming into that space, you obviously inherently are changing it, right? Right. So how do you cope or or what do you think about in terms of that bias that you're introducing with, you know, the observer effect and, and that and what do you do to mitigate it? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, one thing I really love to do is introduce a diary study ahead of, ahead of time. So get them taking pictures of a lot of different things some of them being the things that I'm specifically interested in observing, but not wanting to tell them exactly what those are. So mm-hmm. have them take pictures and, and post those. You know, we'll use D-Scout a lot of the times. Um, and in that week or weeks leading up to when I'm going to come to their home to visit them, I've just collected a great array of um, of artifacts, basically, of what they're doing in their natural environment. And um, that, to me, is helpful because then when we get there, I'll see immediately, okay, this kitchen table is not normally this clean. Like I can tell that they've cleaned up for me. Even if we've asked them, don't do anything different, leave things the way that they are, I would probably do the same thing, right? Um, But because of that diary study where there's been photos collected, we've been able to get insights into kind of how things are, what they do. And then we can draw references during that interview to, to talk about the differences between maybe what we observed or what we didn't. Um, but while we're there, I mean, I think a huge piece of it is building rapport with that participant. Um, I mean, honestly, if the researcher is good and the researcher can make the person feel comfortable, they're going to feel comfortable having you in their space, um, and acknowledging this is weird. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is weird. I'm going to, I'm just going to, don't mind me. I'm just going to be sitting over here in the corner while you make dinner. That is weird. And I think if you don't acknowledge that it's weird, then um, it becomes kind of fake. Yeah. And so I think in my experience, people have been, I mean, not everybody, but if you've recruited the right type of person for this, um, you know, then you definitely will get some pretty valuable um, observation data and also some uh, good interview. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and I love that you are talking about pairing these different methods together, like doing a diary study with what it sounds like you're describing is a form of contextual inquiry and, um, you know, putting those things together to make this ethnography that works in, you know, the time frame and the budget that you have. Because I think if you look at like a more traditional academic ethnography, it's something that, you know, takes a long time. We could bring some of the many academics outside of this room in and probably have them say, you know, oh, if you are, uh, you know, changing anything about the environment, if you are asking someone to perform tasks, if you're doing these different things, like you've now polluted it. But the reality is that like as a UX researcher, you have a finite amount of time, you have a budget and you have a goal that needs to be achieved. And, you know, you don't necessarily have three months to just follow someone around and wait until they, you know, decide to open their laptop and, you know, do this thing that you're really interested in studying. So I think it's really neat to have you kind of call out that, you know, you can pair these different things together to make those findings even more robust. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think that's really it is that um, there's no question that you can do more pure research that's going to you know, go over a longer period of time and um, is, you know, may yield better results. I mean, it would be interesting to do some kind of a study 
um, to see if it really did rather than, you know, I talk about it as being like more um, longitudinal versus cross-sectional, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're dipping in for this moment to understand something about that participant and their environment and how they're using something and then dipping out, right? So, uh, you know, I mean, again, the diaries help us. Um, other forms, we do like interceptive texts with our um, with some of our participants to kind of keep the conversation going. Show, take a picture of where you're at right now, what you're doing right now. Maybe it's a phone call that you have just to talk about what's going on. So keeping that dialogue going. Mm -hmm. But, you know, yeah, at the end of the day, um, you know, we'll never get a totally pure um, taste of what's going on. And so you do have to trust your your user. But I, tr I trust my users. And like I said, it's I think it's better to get that kind of research than um, none at all. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, you talked about maybe observing someone making dinner or something. I would love to kind of hear your take on when is an ethnographic study appropriate? Yeah, well, I think that an ethnographic study is especially appropriate when um, you're doing any kind of foundational research. So, you know, before you have already been sort of tainted with the idea of what you think people want, getting in there and understanding what they are experiencing and what they need. Um, so I always say that um, when you're observing the ethnography, you're looking for the workarounds that people are doing and that it's in those workarounds that you find the innovation, right? And so um, for me, if you, if you come into it and you know we're already moving down this path, this is already going to be the thing that we're going to do, then you're just validating that, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But for me, the best time to do an ethnography is when you still have a lot of leeway in terms of what those decisions are going to be. And you really, truly, sincerely want to see how are people doing something so that I can better understand that. Um, and that could be, you know, how do they research buying a car? Um, maybe that means, I, so I have to go to the car dealership with them. And I'm also going to be at home with them while they're searching on, you know, Kelly Blue Book and um, calling their friend and doing those types of things. Um, so, you know, I think that's, that's all important to kind of understand. If you really want to get a glimpse into what's actually happening in that experience, then you're going to have to be willing to um, tag along or, uh, you know, go to multiple places too. Yeah. Well, what is it like for you, you know, when you're like sitting in someone's living room that you met 10 minutes ago and they're like calling their best friend to like see how their date went last night or whatever? Yeah, I mean, it is kind of, there has been a couple times where, um, yeah, like just recently there was a guy and his roommate was there and he's like, do I do this? Or, you know, asking a question, like he, I asked him a question and then he was like, I don't know. He's like, let me ask my roommate, do I do this? And he's like, oh yeah, all the time, you know? <laughs> and so those kinds of things are really fun. Or one time we were doing um, a study with, it was families, but primarily we're talking to the parents. And so there's actually a video clip of the parents. I'm talking to them, having this kind of deep conversation about what togetherness means. It was like her view of togetherness was different than his view of togetherness. And you could Shocking. tell, <laughs> I know you could tell they were like, what? I didn't know this. And the whole time right behind them is their, um, daughter who's jogging on their Wii um, balance oh, board the whole yeah. entire time she's just like jogging on the Wii balance board and she or they say over to her you know what do you think togetherness is and she's like this <laughs> you know so it was just those little moments are just kind of fun and you know you wouldn't you wouldn't get that if you just brought them into the lab or I had just a phone yeah definitely so you know I'm wondering how like for example let's say you know you have a problem that you want to solve you, you think ethnography um, you know, some combination of these different methods is the right approach. How many, you know, 
interviews or like how many of these meetings do you typically set up? I feel like with usability testing, it's pretty well established. But with something like this, I'm curious, you know, is it five to 15? And how do you kind of pick that magic number? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably debatable for user testing too, because I know, um, you know, some people ascribe by five is all you need. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people say, no way, you need way more numbers. Um, I feel like with ethnography, if you go to five people, um, usually you're starting to see typical types of things. Where it varies though, is if you're talking about different types of users. So if I knew that I have a product or we want to solve a problem for uh, let's say families. I know that not all families look the same, right? There's families that have teenage kids. There's families that have toddlers. There's families that have single parent and, you know, you could, you could go on and on. And obviously the iteration of all the different possibilities is endless. So you kind of pick and choose, well, what are the, what seem to be the main ones that I'm going after? And from there, I think best practice is to choose to do five for each one of those. So if you had three different types of what you kind of considered your main type of families, then you would do 15 Mm -hmm. total. So how would you describe, you know, you're going into these situations, you just talked about like very personal interactions with these people. How would you describe kind of like a good ethnographer or a bad ethnographer, just, you know, generally some of the, the qualities that someone needs to take into a situation like that? Because I think a lot of people would uh, feel uncomfortable. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think that it helps to be a personable person Mm -hmm. and um, have people skills in general. I think you can learn some of those things, but I think you need to be, you just have to be self-aware really is what it comes down to. So you're going into someone's home and one of the, one of my pet peeves is um, asking to use the restroom right as soon as you get there. Because to me, that just shows that I didn't plan. This wasn't like this your time isn't important to me because I'm already going to, I'm already know I'm going to go over. Um, or, you know, being late is really irritating to me because I, you know, they took time off work or they're meeting me right after work. They rushed to get there. They, you know, upheld their end of the deal. And, and I sure as heck, I'm not going to be the one that is going to, you know, be late. Um, but I think in general, you know, just being, yeah, being very self-aware, like, do you, when you walk in, do you see that shoes are off? Um, you should ask if you should take your shoes off too. Um, they have pets. I don't love pets, but she does love pets. So I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy those pets for her because Mm -hmm. that's important to her. Um, you know, looking for commonalities with someone, you know, you go into their house and you see that they, um, have a book that you've read, or, you know, you can see that they've got, um, a decorating color scheme that's similar to yours, things like that, that just sort of immediately start to um, kind of put them at ease, put them at ease. Yeah. It bridge that gap and it makes them start to go beyond this. Oh, wow. This is really super awkward to, okay, we've got some things in common and um, I'm comfortable now. Uh, I think, you know, one thing I like to always tell people is that you're not going in there with a script. You're going in there with a guide Mm -hmm. because that conversation is going to ebb and flow all over the place, especially if you're doing it right, because, um, that means people are going to be inspired to think about other things and you need to be able to roll with that. So, uh, I would say a bad researcher is one who has an agenda, um, and is just like bulldozing through it to the point where it doesn't even feel like you're listening to someone. Um, I, you know, I think also just um, obviously the the basics of suggesting to someone how they feel, doing some of that kind of guided or 
yeah, uh, leading. leading. Yeah, exactly. The, those are things that, that I've seen. Um, judgments, you know, um, picking things up in people's homes, you know, just in general. I mean, act like the guest that your mom trained you to be. <laughs> yeah, you know? it's kind of like the difference between a scientist and a researcher, right? Like someone who comes in and they're like, I need to replicate these five things or yeah. my study is no longer valid as opposed to a researcher who's coming in and they're actually forming a relationship and then you know, because they have that foundational relationship able to kind of get these insights that otherwise would be inaccessible. Um, you know, and also it's funny hearing you describe like walking in and these things because it could definitely feel like for somebody like a bug in a jar, you know, like just yeah. being observed, like vacuuming or whatever. Um, so kind of like, yeah, taking the bug out of the jar or I don't know, maybe never having the bug in the jar. Um, so you talked about like, you know, not being late, it kind of made me think about like preparation, right? So what are, obviously, you know, you want to leave enough time to get there, but what is kind of your, if you have one ritual for getting ready for one of these things, what are the artifacts that you prepare or, you know, what's kind of your way of getting ready? Well, I like to know my participant a little bit beforehand. And by that, I mean, I'm going to look at their, their profile, right? I'm going to know, Profile? Some of those, they're like their profile, like the recruiter might recruit them and then give me a profile of the person that says, okay, this is um, Arielle, she's this old, she's this age, she works here, she um, has two kids and all of that. Because there's nothing more annoying than having that information readily available and then wasting your time asking it in the session. I mean, they know that you have it because they gave it to mm. you ahead of time, right? Um, also, if there's a diary study, I'm going to review all of the entries that they've done. I'm going to write down notes to myself about maybe follow-up questions that I want to ask about that or just other things that I want to remind myself like, um, oh, they watch television from their hot tub or you know, different things that kind of stood out that I want to keep in mind during the session. I'm also going to know the research um, guide or the discussion guide, like the back of my hand. So I'm going to know how I can easily go in and out of, of what I have there. And I'm going to know what questions are the most important questions to ask. So if we get distracted or if we don't get through all the questions that I have, I know which like six or seven questions I'm always going to ask no matter what. Um, and the last thing I do is maybe a little bit weird, but um, you know, the more people that you see, the more you start to come to conclusions about the research that you're seeing. And it's really easy to begin to think that you've already found the answer or start to feel, I mean, I hate to say this, but start, start to feel like the person that you're interviewing, I've already heard that. Okay, boring, yeah. mm -hmm. next thing, you know. So to keep it fresh, um, so one thing that I will do is literally think to myself that I'm going to put all of these kind of preconceived notions, thoughts, um, even ideas. And I'm going to just like, I, I literally imagine a jar. So you're talking about the bug in the jar. I literally <laughs> yeah. imagine a jar. Take that the I'm bug just out. Drop your preconceived yeah, notions. Put all those things in there, close it up, set it in my car, go in to talk with them because, you know, that's like the best way to do research is that it's fresh and it's new. Um, you're prepared. Um, and you're ready to receive insights. If those insights are the exact same things that you heard before, well, guess what? That's fabulous. You know, there's uh, consistency and congruency. That's great. Uh, but those are some of the things that, that I think I do to, to prepare. Um, so I, I know about them. I have questions prepared that I want to ask. I know my plan. And I, I leave all those kind of preconceived notions at the door. Yeah. 
I think that's great. When you, you know, you're saying you know your research guide really well. How do you, how do you do that? Do you, are you like asking the questions in the mirror or how do you kind of prep that? Um, no, uh, I'm not very good good at rehearsing things like that I'm definitely more of an improv type of a person but uh, first of all I wrote the plan mm-hmm. so I have some kind of connection with it um, I mean we sometimes may do pilots with somebody in the office um, I find those hard to do because it's not really true yeah um, sometimes you know we'll we'll plan if we were going to do five sessions we might do six and treat the first one as a pilot even though the participant doesn't know that mm-hmm. um but no, I mean, I, I just literally know it. I mean, I know what the questions are. I have it there written in front of me. I'm taking notes and all of that. But um, I know that, for instance, when someone starts to talk about something and that's supposed to happen later on in the research plan, I can make the decision about whether I want to talk about that now or I can make a note to myself that I want to go back to that when when the time's right, you know, as I'm sort of progressively disclosing things to them over the course of our conversation. It might not be the right time to talk about that, but I'll let them know, you know, that's really interesting. Uh, I definitely want to come back and talk about that in a little bit, but let's talk about these things first. Yeah. So are you actually sitting there with, you know, a notebook and a pen? I am. Yeah. For a couple of reasons. One is, um, well, maybe more than a couple. One is I um, receive information a lot better if I'm writing it down personally. Two, I think that it's really strange to just stare at someone while they're talking to you. Yeah, so that I think makes it sense. takes off a little bit of that pressure. Um, I also kind of continually am in a, in a state of writing because I don't want them to be thinking, oh my gosh, she just wrote something down. I must have said something good mm-hmm. versus now I'm not writing anything down. I must not have said something good. Um, but the other reason is, and this is, I don't know if you call it laziness or really effectiveness, I don't know, but I... I don't ever want to rewatch a video from a session, nor do I want to listen to my transcripts or anything. Um, I know that I'm saying, um, I know that I'm saying like, I don't need to see that. So I like to take notes so that I can um, review those notes immediately after a session um, and then deal with them and, and come to some conclusions, fill in the, the blanks and stuff like that. Yeah, so maybe talk about that a little bit. You know, you don't want to watch these videos, but obviously you have deliverables. And it sounds like it's just you going into the home. There's always two of us because you never want to go to a crazy person's house by yourself. (laughs) Good point. Although we always say, well, if two of us go to the same crazy person's house, that's just two of us. Yeah, just done for. But anyway, um, that hasn't happened (laughs) as of yet. But yeah, no, we always bring two people for safety, um, accountability, um, and also logistics. I mean, if we're recording the the session on either audio or video, then it's nice to have someone else who's handling those things. Also, it's good to have two pairs of eyes that are looking at things and you can compare notes later. So while we do a lot of things um, in usability testing, we'll do like a one-man show by ourselves. We don't have a note taker or anything. Uh, For ethnography, we always have two people and the second person um, typically is um, also taking notes, but primarily there to uh, be a backup and, you know, the video card is full, put a new one in and I don't have to get out of my flow with the participant. They can just keep on running with it. And also for them to be looking, you know, I'm focused on the participant, but they may see things that I don't see because their gaze is not focused on on the participant necessarily. And that's often a lot of times pretty cool for them to be able to see other things that are sort of surrounding the experience. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but yeah, so with the notes though, what I typically do is I have my, my discussion guide. I have it sectioned off with space to write down the answers to the questions during the observation time. I know there's specific things that I'm looking for. And then there's a whole bunch of things I don't know that I'm looking for. So what do you mean the observation time? Is that separate from the actual conversation that you're having with the person? Yeah. Typically the way that we do it is we will do more of like an observation time first and then do other than just niceties, we'll do like an observation time. So maybe it's, I want to see like, again, back to that car example. I want to see, I might say, okay, I want to see, you know, today we're interested in how you shop for your new, for your new car. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, pretend that we're not here, go ahead and, um, do it. You know, if you want, you can think out loud or you can just go ahead and do what you would do. Um, that can get uncomfortable for a really long time. So, um, we typically don't let people do that for more than like 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, but if it's going and they're really, you know, getting in, into it, then we'll just wait for them to tell us when a good stopping point is. Um, but we typically like to do the observation portion first, write down any follow-up questions that we want to ask, and then follow that up with more of like the contextual inquiry or the interview, um, where we're going to now have them reflect back on what they were doing. Maybe they're going to walk us through what they were doing again. But I would say it's rare for us, although not, not out of question, to do an ethnographic visit where you're just straight observing someone and not either peppering in questions or asking questions at the end. So, I mean, you have obviously, you know, had so much experience doing these studies. Do you have any tips in terms of, you talked a little bit at the beginning about being a good observer, and I wonder if you have any kind of, um, yeah, any words of wisdom in terms of how people can, you know, do that better. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things that I like to talk about is um, you can practice being a good observer um, in your daily life, right? Um, Set yourself down at the mall next time and don't have an agenda uh, look around and just see what's what's going on I mean you think that you know how um, the mall kiosk worker works but do you really know how they work do you really know what's going on there um, I think a lot of times especially with our work we are we're experts at it we understand what's going on um, but I I like the exercise of um, putting ourselves in different situations trying to look at it through a different pair of of lenses and um, looking for things that maybe you hadn't noticed um, the last time you were at the mall. Um, You know, things like that that are going on around you, behind you, all over the place, but you just have kind of this like very focused view that you miss it. Um, That's a way to, I think, practice having good observational skills Um, because what happens even in these ethnographies is, again, back to the car example, you know, uh, I might be focused on what you're doing on the computer because you mentioned that. Um, but what if on your refrigerator was a picture of a new car with some specs on it? You just forgot about that part of it, right? It's not your fault. You just forgot about that. Um, but you know, being able to kind of look around and see what else is happening, or are you taking notes on a post-it note? Um, you know, why do you take notes on the post-it note versus, uh, you know, typing that into your computer and, you know, there's things like that to just start to, to question. So what I always tell people is to just have the attitude of, I wonder, asking yourself questions of why. Um, and then another piece that we haven't talked about is, um, it's an overused word, but the idea of empathy, right? Um, and I think that it's something that makes somebody a great researcher is when you can 
put yourself in that person's shoes and understand, try to understand a little bit about where they're coming from. Um, you know, whether it's someone, so one way you can practice that is you go to Starbucks and you order your coffee and you're frustrated by the fact that it's taking them a long time to get your order out. So I go, I'll go through these exercises sometimes of just thinking, um, how many people have come through in the last, you know, couple of minutes? How many orders is that? How long does it take them to make an, an order? There's only two people behind the counter. I wonder what happened to him on his way into work this morning. What kinds of things were going on in his life? What kinds of things are going on in my life? It's a hard day for me today because I've got um, some family stuff going on. It would be hard for me to focus. I'm going to have a little bit of grace. And so I think sometimes when you can go through that kind of empathetic experience for even something that doesn't seem that important, I think you can begin to kind of practice exercising some of those muscles, even for, for ethnography. Yeah, it's so interesting because I feel like you can't avoid becoming a better person as you become a better researcher, you know, because like you said, I mean, empathy is definitely an overused word in this space, but it's such a part of being, you know, a gracious human being is being able to have that empathy. And I loved, uh, you know, an analogy that you used of sympathy is looking down into a hole and empathy is actually standing in the hole. Uh, Which is Brene Brown. It's her. Oh, that's her analogy? Yeah, it's her analogy. And it's from a really great video or little, it's from a book, but then it's also from this video. You could just YouTube it, Brene Brown Empathy. And it's just a great, well done video about that, um, which I think explains it really, really well. Um, And that's important because even, you know, we've done medical things where I will never understand what it feels like to be someone who deals with a certain medical condition. I mean, hopefully, right? But but I can understand what that feels like to have been in a hospital before. I've been in a hospital before. I can understand, I can tap in a little bit into the pain of what that feels like when a loved one of yours is going through that. Um, Or even if it's something not as serious as that, Um, you know, it's really easy, especially with technology stuff to blame the user. And so we'll do this all the time in ethnographies is you'll see them doing something and you're thinking to yourself like, okay, that is the worst way to do that. There's (laughs) such an easier way to do that. But you know, I mean, they don't, they don't go to a tech job every, every day. They don't, you know, live in Silicon Valley, like where I'm from, where everybody seems to kind of know the latest tips and tricks. And so when you start to understand that a little bit better, I think it helps you, it just helps you understand that these things that seem obvious to me and to maybe my design or my product, they're not obvious to everyone else. And that's okay. That doesn't make them a stupid person, mm-hmm. a, um, you know, incompetent person or whatever. It just means that they're looking at it from a different perspective. Yeah. And I mean, I think that becomes even more important when you zoom out the farther out you zoom, right? There was, um, Patty Mays today said in a a session, she talked about actually going and, and for those of you who don't know, which was me two hours ago, uh, she's a professor at the MIT media lab. And she talked about actually going and doing a study in Tanzania, And she said, you know, most of these people own five to 10 objects. And one of those five to 10 objects was a smartphone. And like the other object was like a spear. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And you think about that and you're just like, oh my gosh, that's so, that's such a different perspective to be designing a smartphone app for, you know, it's like I own a spear, a pair of sandals and a smartphone. Like, so I think it, it, it is, it's so interesting and so important as we, 
you know, not only try to design better experiences, but design better, more accessible experiences or experiences that are more accessible for more people. Yeah. That's why I say it's so humbling to do um, ethnography because, you know, I mean, I'll tell you during this last election, living in um, California, specifically the Bay Area, um, it it's very myopic in terms of kind of what everyone's thinking and all of that. And I happen to do research going out to um, like the South, basically. And, um, you know, you get off the plane and things are just different. And you kind of have to wrestle with that a little bit in your heart, too, of it's been easy from an ivory tower to throw stones or something. But then you begin to understand, well, this is very different. There's very different life here. And I'm not saying one opinion's better than another, but you begin to understand it a little bit more, and that's that's what you want. You know, I tell people that when we do ethnography, we're becoming the people who speak for, we're the person who's speaking for the people, right? Mm-hmm. So we're advocating for our users, our potential users, and uh, I just don't feel like you can do that very well unless you've really gotten down into that hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So it sounds like, I mean, you described going in with one other person and, um, you know, having this experience, which is, yeah, I mean, I just, I feel like calling out, it's so unique to get to do that. You know, I was, um, I was doing some usability testing a few weeks ago and I mean, people don't even know that this is a profession. A lot of people, like I'm doing this usability test and I had two people in a row in different sessions ask me, wait, what is your job? It seems like, it seems like you're having so much fun. And I was like, yeah, I am, (laughs) you know? But um, yeah, so, you know, you're going in um, to these people's homes with one other person. It sounds like you're not bringing your client, which I think is an interesting Sometimes decision. that other person is the client. Um, oh, okay. And if we do bring the client, then there's a special set of rules for them, which is, you know, don't wear anything that shows. Because usually it's blinded, typically, when we're doing these things. I mean, if it's done really well, usually it's done blinded. And then we have a whole flow that we do if a client comes and they're my, my buddy that comes with me. They um, may not take the same notes that I'm taking, but um, I'll give them a note sheet still so that they can um, keep busy and, and follow it. But um, one thing that we do and they make very clear is that um, like they're not supposed to fix things. You know, it's very hard when you see somebody struggling on your your product, but um, you that we're not there to fix things. It's okay. And then um, we have this cadence where I'll ask my questions. And then when we get a natural break, I'll say to the client, like, do you have any questions that you'd like to ask right now? And then they may, they may ask a question. But, um, you know, typically that involves, you know, meeting up at the coffee shop a half hour before to kind of go over what those, um, what our flow is going to be basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then what happens after, right? Like you've gone through, you have all of this really interesting, impactful uh, data and information about the experience. How do you communicate that? Because, and that's something that comes up pretty frequently in the conversations that I have. Is it's really difficult to report things um, in a in a meaningful way because you know people like you're saying they're really invested in these experiences and these products that they're building. And you know, so I've talked to some people who say, you know, have everyone who needs to observe. You know, like they should have already gotten all of the main takeaways by the time the study is yeah. done. So. It sounds like you have two people, sometimes one of which is a client. How do you make that experience and that, um, you know, research worthwhile? Yeah. And, you know, you do have to be careful because when when you're going out to a bunch of different places, especially if you are bringing the client with you, um, they're probably not going to all 15 locations with you. Right. So 
Therefore, their view of what they observed is based on one or two data points. And you have to be really careful because they want to go back and they're so excited because they loved it, right? They caught the bug of ethnography. They loved it. They're telling everybody in their, you know, division or whatever, the group, um, this is what we have to do to fix it or whatever. But they don't realize that we've just seen two other sessions that were very different from that. So I know it's really hard to get people to wait till they get the results. Um, so what we do I feel like the best practice we don't do this all the time but when we do it well I mean when we do it right this is the the right way to do it is um, you do a session you um, get lunch during lunch you f go back through your notes sheet and you fill in the gaps of what you missed right um, maybe and you're with your other person and you talk about that like did you see when they did this because I missed that they say oh yeah 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 they they did this fill in, fill in the blanks uh, or maybe they said, no, I missed it too. I'm going to circle that. I'm going to mark that as something that I need to go rewatch the video for. Then um, that's like immediately after. Then what I like to do is run through this exercise with myself of, I obviously imagine a lot, but I imagine, okay, let's say I was stuck in an elevator with my client and they said, tell me what the takeaways were from this session. Uh, would I be able to communicate that? So is that like one sentence, three sentences or something? So I, I like to just highlight those themes immediately, right? Here's, here's the main takeaways from this participant. Then I can set those away for a little while because, I mean, as you know, the more research that you get in your head, it gets more and more confusing because you can't remember if Joan or Joe or Susie or Sam said that. And so it's good to look at those notes, um, deal with them, and then move on to the next person. From there, what I do is type up my notes. Um, and so I type up the notes um, so that they, I'm again processing them again. And as I'm doing that, I might be having ideas or I might be having um, inspiration about what the story is going to be for that report that I'm going to put out. And I keep track of those in a separate notebook. Um, as I'm typing up those notes. And then now I've got these notes that I can um, send to people along with the videos and things like that to keep them engaged. And finally, uh, when all the research is done, I've got these kind of separate little stories of people and the themes. I compare those themes. I look at my notebook that has the scratches of the story that I've been concocting here and the ideas. And I just sit with it and sort of think about, again, if I had a longer conversation with someone, um, you know, put aside everything, put aside all the transcripts, the notes, the videos, what would I say? How would I communicate uh, what we heard um, and what we should do? Yeah, definitely. So what advice would you have for someone who's listening to this and they're like, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to, you know, go out and do my first ethnographic research. Well, I would say make sure that you plan. And I would say if you're the kind of person who needs to practice interviewing or needs to practice observing or knows that you're not very empathetic or has a hard time seeing um, around what else what else is going on, then, you know, practice that a little bit. Practice that in your just your personal life and, um, you know, get a little bit better at, at noticing things and um, drawing some conclusions. Uh, one of the things we do is like what's in what's in my bag right so where you have someone dump out their bag and try to make some observations about about what's important to them and things like that so practicing some of those things actually really does help because it makes you start to realize oh I missed that that is kind of important and that does lead me to more so I would say practice some of those things and jump in 
Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already, join us for more UX research conversation in the Slack group. You can request an invite under the community tab on our website, mix-methods.org. For my favorite UX research articles and mixed methods announcements, follow us on Twitter. Special thanks to Laura Levitt, who creates original graphics for each episode. See you next time.